Hello, everyone, and welcome to Most Likely to Read. We are your hosts, Mika and Ashley, and today we're going to discuss The Crucible by Arthur Miller. The Crucible is a play that is a fictionalized version of the Salem Witch Trials and tells the story of a group of young Salem women who falsely accuse other villagers of witchcraft. The accusations and ensuing trials push the village into hysteria that results in the arrest of 200 villagers and the deaths of 19. The play is an allegory for McCarthyism when the U.S. government persecuted people accused of being communist. But we will get into all of that in more detail later. So this is another example of a book that I read in school for comprehension purposes only. I took tests every few days to make sure I knew the names of the major characters and recall questions about what happened. And I was in honors English. So again, this is one of those books that frustrates me to no end now having read it again as an adult and finding all the insane things that are in there. Yeah, because there's so much you can do with this. So the majority of my time in the classroom was in 11th grade with American literature. This became one of my most favorite things to teach. I love this play because it's so good and students really like this one. They can identify and relate to the injustice found within the play, and they typically have really strong reactions to it, which I always took as a good sign. Uh, I also love teaching the historical context of the play, both the Salem Witch Trials and McCarthyism. There is such rich history here, and there are so many connections to make to different time periods across history. There are just so many things that I like about this one. So let's get into the historical context. Um, the historical setting of the play and when the play was written are both necessary to understanding this play. Uh, the play was written about the Salem Witch Trials, and it's set during that time period in American history. However, the play was written during McCarthyism, when Arthur Miller was actually accused of being a communist spy. Let me give you a little more background about McCarthyism, because the connection between the two is fascinating. In the 1950s, Senator Joe McCarthy capitalized on the Red Scare, a time in history when fear and paranoia about the influence of communism in the United States was at a peak, and began investigating people in the United States to determine if they were sympathetic and helping the communists in any way. His investigations targeted people in the U.S. military, in the government, and Hollywood. Arthur Miller was one of those in Hollywood targeted by McCarthy. In an essay Miller wrote called Why I Wrote the Crucible, Miller states that the play was an act of desperation, as an act of defiance against McCarthy and the House Committee on Un-American Activities, but also because of the paralysis that many liberals experienced for fear of being identified as covert communists if they should protest too strongly. After doing research on the Salem witch trials, Miller knew he had to write about the time period. The more I read into the Salem Panic, the more it touched off corresponding images of common experiences in the 50s. The panic caused by the girls and the ensuing hysteria in the town as a result of the girls' actions fit with Miller's experiences of the Red Scare and McCarthyism, and the play was born. There is a lot more information about this topic. Uh, this is really just a brief overview. The article mentioned will be linked in the show notes. Take some time to read through that. It is a wonderfully written article, but it's also so cool to hear from the author himself about why he wrote something. Highly recommend reading it. And I just want to add in here that you can take where we are today, and it is March 7th, 
2022 and draw some very, very common similarities Yes, in today's world. But also, I want to mention, I listened to this play on Audible, and I also read the book. And there is a note in the book, and there is a part at the end of Audible that states that Miller left out a crucial scene about Abigail. And I want you to keep this in your mind. And I think that everybody should read that scene and read that reasoning. Why? Because I feel like it adds so much more power to this book. But by leaving it out, you're missing an integral piece. So I'm, that still that still sticks with me. Yeah. And I, I think that's a good point to like read. If you read the article, you'll get a really good idea of why he wrote it. And then if you read the deleted scene, if you will, um, I think it's it's just really interesting that we know so much about it, even though he's not here. Okay. So in some of our past podcasts, we have completed character questions activities, which was something that we used in an NCTE webinar about the Great Gatsby. And today we're going to try something different. So it's my turn to play a game with Mika, since she played the character game and introduced that to me. So Kyleen Beers and Robert Probst um, are two great researchers on reading comprehension, and they created these six notice and note signposts. And they're supposed to alert readers to significant moments in the text. And we'll include a link to their book in our show notes. But what we did was we took their signposts and modified them for the purpose of this podcast and combined them with some of the questions from the NCT activity. And of course, we renamed them to reflect our thinking and feelings at that particular time in the story. So instead of signposts, we're going to lovingly refer to these as our wait a minute moments, especially with this book, because there are a lot of moments in this play that make you just stop and say, wait a minute. So our first wait a minute moment is what we're gonna call close the book. And this is that point in the story where you were most frustrated with a character. It's that point that causes you indigestion as the reader, if you will, and literally makes you want to shut the book and take a deep breath or perhaps go clean something, whatever your outlet is. So Mika's going to start us off and tell us what her close the book moment was. So Mika, and I'll say I we know that I lack patience. So by the end of act one, I, I literally had to close the book. I was just floored that the children can just accuse anyone. Kind of like in 1984, when the kids turn on their parents at such an early age, it just seems like an easy way to get rid of someone you don't like. And then the nonsense that it's better to confess that spirits are torturing you as opposed to being called a witch. It's like crying wolf, but in this case, it's crying witch. And there is nothing more dangerous than a girl scorned by an affair. Yeah, especially in this case. And I think the other thing, too, that just makes you stop sometimes is we see stuff like this happening now. And with social media, you know, people can say what they want and there's no repercussions. Right. And it can just go off onto yep. one word yep. can go off onto a tangent that is nowhere close to where you wanted it to be. And that can be very harmful for people. Okay. So we shut the book on those moments. Now we've opened it again, which brings us to our next wait a minute moment, which we're going to refer to as true colors. Now you can think about the song true colors if you're in a singing mood 
or you can think about the true colors personality activity that most of you have probably done at some point in your life. If not, it's worth a Google. And either way of thinking gets to the point of this, wait a minute, stopping point. So this is the point as the reader that you have an aha moment about a character's development. Ultimately, you start to see their true colors. See what I did there? I do. I do. So I think this is a fun way to think about uh, and to analyze character traits and development. So for Abigail, I think we see her true colors when she first accuses Elizabeth of having a poppet and trying to murder her in Act 2. Uh, this is when we know that Abigail is not playing and we realize the depths that she will go to in order to have John in this act. Uh, in Act 2, I also think we see John's true colors. We see that he is going to fight for his wife. And while this is only the beginning of the fight, he seems determined to put Abigail in her place, especially considering he had an affair with Abigail to begin with. So my true colors moment was when I realized that these girls actually believed that they were possessed by spirits and that they are now marshals of the court and they are believed by all the men. I'm going to repeat that. These crazy girls were considered marshals of the court and believed by all the men. So from the mouths of babes shall come the truth is what they said. And not to mention the fact that you can just like someone can just walk into your house to quote, see if there is wickedness around you. What kind of meter is that or a measure of anything? But men who didn't listen to women anyways, especially back in the time of Salem witch trials, yes. are giving these girls the ability to be marshals of the court. How it just seems crazy. Like, it seems crazy. I don't even know what to do with that. Mm -mm. Okay, so I want to play this clip from a popular movie, one that most people have probably seen. And I'm not going to tell you what movie it is at first because I want to see if you have the same epiphany I did. Come in close. Because the more you think you see, the easier it'll be to fool. So come in closer. Because the more you think you see, the easier it will be to fool you. What do you think? I think it's very relevant in this case. I think, you know, especially like when they start searching houses and accusing all these people, it it's almost like this hysteria. It, well, it was like a hysteria that took over them and they were they were seeing the things that they wanted to see, not necessarily what was real. And they were coming as close as possible. They are walking yeah. into these people's houses yeah. to check for wickedness. Now, in case you didn't recognize the voice, that's uh, the famous Morgan Freeman. And that's actually from Now You See Me, which is a movie about magicians and or con artists, however you want to look <laughs> at it. And I will tell you that the minute I was reading the part where Mr. Hale came in to John Proctor's house to search for what he called, quote, Christian character, I immediately thought about this movie and all the con artistry and how easy it was to believe and how easy it was that they did believe. Yeah, it's it really is truly amazing to me. And this is something that students pick up on as well. Um, it's amazing to see how quickly things went south. And I think it's easier for me to understand it now 
after all the political and social turmoil of the last few years, but things turned really bad for the entire village very quickly after these girls decided to start their lies. And they're acting. Yes. You you kind of got to give them props for the acting. They, they believed it. I, I don't know why, but they were there. They believed it. They owned it and they were committed to it. They, they were committed. That's the only thing I will say. All right. So at this point, we feel like we're starting to get to know the characters, which means we have a better idea of their motivations. So this next wait a minute moment is our turning point. And that's the point that we as readers realize that something that a character does is going to change the story in some significant or profound way. So Mika, what's your turning point? So I hate to keep referencing act two, but for me, it's, this is where this happens. Um, And it isn't just for one or two characters, but for the entire play, when they come to get Elizabeth and we realize the links that Abigail will go to in order to have John to herself. I think that's the moment when I'm like, okay, this, this is really going to happen. And they start arresting all these other people in the village, all these good Christian people in the village. And I think for the characters as well, I think this is when Proctor realizes that Abigail is not playing either and that it's about to get really bad. Um, When he's questioned by Hale, it's clear that the Proctor family is under suspicion. And I think John and Elizabeth both realize at this moment that things are about to get really bad. So that was my major turning point as well. But just to add a different perspective, I came up with another turning point. And that's the moment I realized that it really didn't matter what was said in court if you were accused. So Abigail was getting her way and anything you said, you would have to prove. Like when the one woman says she was just saying her commandments and the court asked her to literally recite the commandments. She couldn't, which meant she was guilty. Also, if you're supposed to know them, fine, but even in Act 2, Hale alludes that he is giving Elizabeth Proctor a secret test in her very own house about whether or not she knew her commandments. Sorry, not sorry, but rote memorization is not evidence. No. You can quiz me on 20 vocabulary words this week, and I'm going to forget them all next week. I know there are 10 commandments, but I can't recite them verbatim. I know our Bill of Rights, but again, I cannot recite it verbatim. Do those things make me a witch? The Bible was the fortress that they used to hold everything together. So it feels like you need to have that memorized from cover to cover. And if they confess to witchcraft, they'll hang. But if they say they're possessed, they're seen as victims that can be treated. So are only the accusers holy now? The crazies are literally holding the keys to the kingdom in this play, and common vengeance is the law. Knowing the time period is critical to understanding the premise behind all of this nonsense. Yeah, and it was actually pretty interesting because Miller kind of wrote about this in that article that I mentioned earlier. He specifically talks about researching the Salem witch trials and finding out about spectral evidence, which meant that if if I swore that you had sent out your familiar spirit to choke, tickle, or poison me or my cattle, or to control my thoughts and actions, I could get you hanged unless you confess to having had contact with the devil. In addition, the best proof of the sincerity of your confession was your naming others whom you had seen in the devil's company. It was as though the court had grown tired of thinking 
and had invited in the instincts, spectral evidence that poisoned the cloud of paranoid fantasy. And it made a kind of lunatic sense to them as it did in the plot written 1952 during McCarthyism as well. So it's, it sounds absolutely crazy, right? Like I, if somebody accused me, I could name somebody else. You could name me. I could name you. And then you could name somebody else. And then we could just keep naming people. And we'd be okay. And we'd be fine. But the person that we named who said, no, I'm not going to, I'm not a witch. I'm not going to call anybody else out. They're the ones that are going to die. So it's like Mean Girls. It is. In the 21st century. (laughs) It is. Okay. So our next wait a minute is what I call the excuse me moment. And this is the point in the story when you actually want to intervene and offer a life lesson to a character. And I kind of think about it as if I could literally jump into the storyline at that very moment in time, who would I pull aside to give them like a good old piece of best friend advice? Like, man, this is your moment. Do this instead of this. So Mika, what's your excuse me moment? Uh, my excuse me moment is for Hale. I think he he's the one that I think throughout has the most doubts about this process. Um, and in the beginning of Act 3, he seems to start to understand that maybe what they're doing to people isn't actually right. I think I would have pulled him aside after he visited the Proctors in Act 2, before Elizabeth is accused and arrested, to give him some advice to listen to his gut which he was starting to do when he showed up to question the proctors and their Christian character. He didn't know they were coming to arrest her that night. And I think he was genuinely surprised when they did. That was the moment I would have pulled him aside to question his actions. I guess this is what I get for questioning you because I get to say she took all my answers. (laughs) So I'll do a different excuse me. And that was when Paris finally realized that Abigail had left and stolen from his home And he then knew all of it was lies and innocent people had had been killed because of his desire to be the loudest voice in town, especially as the minister. He wanted people to follow him. He needed to be the voice of reason. He needed to be the one with all the respect. And then to circle around and realize that your niece is the one that started all this. And people lost their lives because of her craziness. Yeah, it totally, I mean, it destroyed the town, right? Like, So at that point, I'd want to pull him to the side and be like, hey, before more people die? Yeah. Because how many more were were left? They were like in the teens, right? Still left in the Yeah, I think so. Prison. I think so. There was a good amount. So, all right. So at this point in our analysis, our next wait a minute moment is what we're going to call on repeat. And these on-repeat moments are the connections that we make between the story and the real world. So no matter what year the book is written in, what similarities can you draw between the story and the world today? So I think my real-world moment with The Crucible is that even though the hysteria and paranoia seem crazy, we all know it isn't. And we have seen more of this since that time in history. And I dare say that we're seeing it now. Um, You know, we see it happen a lot with social media, but even with world events that are happening at this particular moment, uh, we we see this hysteria and paranoia take over whole communities and ruin people. 
and my real world connection, I did a little bit of a deep dive into some research and wanted to tell you guys about a story that I found and how it connects. And this is called the hashtag challenge accepted. And it's the story of a viral hashtag that lost its meaning, but it originated in Turkey to take action for femicide, which is killing women because of their gender. So women in Turkey were frustrated over always seeing black and white photos of women who had been killed. Now the men in Turkey got convicted of murder and then they get severely reduced sentences because they claim the women provoke them. Gosh, that sounds familiar. It does. It's the woman's fault. She gets killed. And if the man shows up to court in a suit and tie, they get a slap on the hand, a quote, penalty reduction, as the Turkish government calls it. It's literally called, wait for it, the suit and tie defense. So kind of like Abigail and the girls came into the courtroom and, oh, spirits, woe is me, she's the devil, blah, blah, blah. These men could show up in suits and ties and claim that it was the woman's fault. Who was dead? That she was murdered. I couldn't believe it. So one of the quotes from a Turkish businessman, and this is from an NP article that we'll link, he, he said, I would say it's 70% the fault of men and 30% the fault of women. Women make it worse for themselves by either being meek, which makes men feel more aggressive, or they overreact, which triggers the men. I'm sorry. So damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, pretty much. But hashtag challenge accepted and the suit and tie defense. I think flows right back into yeah, the crucible. Definitely. All right. So that brings us to our final wait a minute moment, which is stuck like glue. This is the thing that sticks with you, the reader the most. And I'm going to give you an example, Mika. So for the past three years, I have labeled a Mason jar with the year on it. And I write down all the different books I read that year. I use a little slip of paper, like a third of an index card. And I write who recommended the book. A lot of times it's Mika. And on the other side, I write the name of the book and something that will make me want to read that book again or remember why that book was so good or made me so angry or made me feel a certain way. It's my my books that I want to read again. I like that. I might steal that idea. So what's your stuck like glue moment? Uh, so I know I, I sound like a broken record, but I think for me, it's the fact that people can say things that aren't true, but they become truth and then real consequences happen. How are teenage girls allowed to ruin the lives of everyone in a town? But the funny thing is, we know the answer to this. Current affairs around the world show us how something like this could happen and does happen. And it seems absolutely crazy to think about, but it happens more often than I care to admit. And I think that is one reason why this is so fun to read with students because they know this is true. This happens every day in high school Absolutely. in some way, shape or form, right? Like somebody says something, it's not true, but it becomes truth. And then there are real consequences to that, that lie. And that leads me right into my moment, which is from the book, they quote, the pure in heart need no lawyers. <laughs> And that's a perfect example of high school because there are no lawyers in high school. We right. all know that. So what one person says and repeats, it goes on and on and on. But a person is either with the court or against it. There's no road in between. 
God's grace separates the good people from the evil. Witchcraft is an invisible crime, and we can only rely upon her victims and the children. So what's even left for a lawyer to consider? Not a whole lot. That was just a... Yeah. That was a that was an everything moment. Uh, Close yeah. the book, yeah. drop the mic, it everything. It is. All right. So, and in the original spirit of our podcast, this last question comes from our NCT activity and has to do with the candidate for a spinoff, either a prequel or a sequel. So what's before and outside the pages? What would you like to see? Uh, for me, I want to see the girls after the trials. What happened to all of them? What happened to Abigail? How did the town recover? Um, I want a spinoff that addresses all of those questions, like what happened after all this was done. I'm kind of the same way. I want a spinoff that addresses how the society would continue if this behavior were allowed to continue. Oh, yeah, I like that. So if Abigail didn't leave, yeah. if she stayed and they were allowed to run with these things and all their petty accusations and I'm going to call them mean girl tricks. Oh, my God. It's kind of like Lord of the Flies, except with girls. It is, actually. And Golding said he wrote Lord of the Flies from a boy's perspective because he knew what it meant to be a boy, a son, and a father, and not what it meant to be a girl. A girl. Okay, so a dinner with him and Arthur Miller would be super fun. It would be. It would be. And it's interesting, too, to kind of go off of that because Arthur Miller did all of his research, right? But he was also kind of living that with the whole thing about McCarthyism at the same time. So while it might be a stretch to imagine a grown man writing from a perspective of a teenage girl, he was, he was living it as well. Not as a teenage girl, obviously, but he was living it. So I think it would be interesting to have these two together to talk about that. I'm going to add that to my bucket list. Yeah. So Ashley and I think the superlative that best fits the crucible is most likely to remind you how fragile society is. It only takes one person to bring everything crumbling down, you guys. Just one. All right. So thanks for tuning into this episode of Most Likely to Read. Don't forget to check the website for additional resources. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and follow us on Twitter at Most Likely to Read. We'll see you guys next time. I'm not going to